All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum Stay on target. Maximum Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. Tonight is episode 53 and we're going to talk about War Machine, the Brad Pitt movie on Netflix, about the Afghani war that's still going to this day. And we have a special guest from Foreign Policy Focus. He's also part of the Libertarian Union. And that is a uh, conglomeration or a confederation of nine different podcast providers that are all creating content all the time. And it's all in one feed. And here's a little blurb about it. In the early days of the internet, radical libertarians were scattered, lonely, and faceless. Without direction, they resigned to scour the web, sifting through content providers in a wasteland plagued by YouTube demonetization, Facebook jail, and covert internet censorship. But then, in 2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. And that was the lovely wife of Patrick McFarlane of the Liberty Weekly podcast, also a member of the Libertarian Union. So do check us out at libertarianunion.com, also at facebook.com slash libertarianunion1, the number one, and join us on the Facebook secret groups and all of that. Support any of the providers and you'll be able to get into the secret commingle group, the Libertarian Union Copperheads. And before we get going, I'm going to say uh, hello to my friend Robert before we introduce our guest, Kyle. So how you doing, buddy? Hey, yeah, I'm all right. Chilly. It's chilly. But, you know, staying alive. Yeah, staying alive. Ah, 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 ah. Staying alive. I think I'm tuned in. Uh, is it too late to get Patrick McFarland's wife back? <laughs> I'm afraid so. How's it going, man? I'm doing all right, man. I, I made the mistake of having a brilliant idea last night. Oh, and I hate, I hate this. I, I, so I'll come up with an idea and I'll just keep thinking on it so I won't be able to sleep. And then I'll be excited to start in on it in the morning. And you're going to laugh when, when I tell you what the idea is. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So I'm used to it. I come out to my office and I start implementing the idea. And the idea is to rearrange the office. Move oh, stuff shit. around. And, of course, I'm kicking up all this dust. I've got all these books out here and, and a bookshelf that hasn't moved from when I put it in the office two years ago. And so kicking up all this dust, getting all dirty, can't really breathe, moving stuff around, hundreds of books. And then I move the big shelf, and then I move another one, and then I move the desk, and then I move all the stuff around. And now that uh, it's not really going to work. So now everything is back where it was. So you didn't do any measuring beforehand? Well, it all fit. It just didn't flew. It didn't have the feng shui or whatever you call it. Yeah, okay. So 
you had an idea for the optimal workflow environment, and it just didn't didn't match your expectations. Yeah, well, I have this five five panel bookshelf thing. It's you know five cubes across and five cubes tall, and I thought that is a good room divider. And so what I could do is put it like mid office, divide my workspace, studio space from the rest of the office, which we used to like work out in. And I've had some acoustic issues in the office. I'm like, oh, you know, that'll enclose it a little bit better. It'll dampen some of the sound, reduce some reflections. But it just made like this little corner so cramped and so dark that it just was not good. It was no good. It was all bad. Sorry to hear that, Daniel. Yeah. So well, everything you couldn't have anticipated. Well, in my, in my mind, it was like beautiful. It was going to be great. Mm-hmm. Well, glad to know you're being productive. Oh, it's all about the being productive. I've even got the mixer. Uh, well, see, okay, this is the other part. I've got the mixer, but I didn't have the desk space to use the mixer. And so I was trying to rearrange some things also to fit that in because I've got three computers and the TV monitor and the microphone and the mixer and some hard drives and printers and all this other crap. Anyway, I've, uh, I've solved for that a little bit. And I cleaned in the, in the process, so it's a little bit cleaner out here. So all in all, a bunch of hassle for very minimal improvement, which kind of sounds like well done. what we've been doing in Afghanistan. <laughs> sounds similar. <laughs> or, or no improvement, right? I don't even know. Yeah, actually, you're making it far worse. All right. Well, this will be episode 53 of the Actual Anarchy podcast. It can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 53, where you're talking about War Machine with Kyle Ancelone of Foreign Policy Focus. And you also do a uh, website, Kyle's Files. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So, Kyle, why don't you just introduce yourself to our audience and tell them what projects you do and how they can find your stuff. So I, I do a daily news roundup, and that's kind of how I got started with the whole thing. Um, that uh, gets published on the libertarianinstitute.org and then on my website, kylesfilesblog.com. And then I do a, a podcast called Foreign Policy Focus, where I discuss kind of foreign policy news type stuff three days a week. Uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday shows like 20 minutes each. So foreign policy focus is the main thing. Uh, you know, I, I just like talk and read foreign policy all day long. Yeah, well, you're you're a working machine, man. Speaking of war machines, uh, you do so many. Like, I constantly see on the Libertarian Union your stuff coming up. Yeah, three shows a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I keep them short. Like, I do, like, you know, 20 minutes, a half hour, and, and just, you know, kind of cover the current events. It works out because the show notes are pretty much just all the, you know, research I do for the news roundups anyway. So a lot of times I'm, I'm kind of just chatting about all the things I'm reading about. Okay, so you're sort of... Um utilizing all the different things you're already doing anyway, right? Like you're already right. compiling that and you're already thinking about it, so you might as well also just throw in a 20, 30-minute discussion. Right. And, uh, I mean, the only pain is, you know, the editing and everything, you know, putting it all together. But I think, you know, it's a good skill to learn and uh, you know, learn how to talk on these podcast things is probably good to know how to do so. So far, it's been fun and, you know, I've had a little bit of success with it, so I'm glad I'm doing it. Yeah, so speaking of that success, now you're doing it with uh, Scott Horton, right? Uh, uh, well, yeah, uh, the Libertarian Institute is uh, Scott's institute, and uh, uh, he lets me publish my uh, show up there. It's on the homepage right under Scott's show. And, uh, yeah, that's something real cool. That was, like, kind of the most exciting thing that's probably happened since I started. It was, you know, uh, getting the privilege to post my show up there. I mean, it's right between, like, Scott Horton's show and Will Grid's show. And so, you know, kind of two of the guys, like, I've learned so much from, and, you know, rest in peace, Will Gregg, and Scott Horn's just an amazing guy. I know so much about foreign policy, so that that was really cool for me. What's your angle? 
I mean, I go with, like, either anti-war, non-interventionist. For practical, you know, terms, they're the same thing. I mean, there's no war the United States is going to get in that I necessarily support. Um, But at the same time, like, a nation obviously has the right to defend itself. So I guess, you know, I would would definitely, you know, in in philosophical terms, go with, like, a non-interventionist. Okay, so you've been primarily, would you say, like, a critic? For the most part, the <laughs> very critical, yeah, of U.S. foreign policy. All right. And then, where do you fall on the um, political spectrum? Uh, libertarian uh, is usually just why I use as a description. I typically try to avoid getting into the more debates between libertarian and ANCAP. I, I mean, we're we're all moving in the direction of libertarian, so uh, you know, I, I don't see a whole lot of need to qualify, you know, like qualify myself past that, but. I am, uh, for the most part, like an ad cap, and I uh, tend to have like very Rothbardian views on everything. Rock and roll. All right, cool. So, what what sort of um, daily news do you cover? Like mostly just what did the government do today? What what's what's going on in the wars? Or yeah, like I I definitely try to keep up with the wars. Any inter- big international stories, like even you know internal civil unrest in Pakistan, or. Uh, you know, what's going on. There's just a coup in Zimbabwe. Turkey's always a big one, Saudi Arabia, stuff like that. And then uh, I, the other things I try to cover are just like either police abuse or government abuse. Uh, the police abuse is a big one, war on drugs kind of stuff. I always try to hit on spying programs, anything like that. Whatever, whatever the state does that offends me, I, I try to post on it. Excellent. So did you, what, what, I mean, before, not to burn like content on the movie or anything, but you've seen the movie recently and you got some strong opinions on it or some content? Uh, I, I mean, oh, it, it wasn't a bad movie overall, so <laughs> I'll say that. Uh, it was better than I thought it'd be, I guess, is uh, kind of my initial reaction to the movie. I was like, wow, this, this is pretty good. Now, when you say good, you mean like this is entertaining, this is like a good, well-structured movie, well-made movie, or you mean... This is kind of presenting the world as it is, as opposed to some sort of propaganda piece. I I guess not. It's, you know, it's not entirely accurate. There, there's definitely things that you know should have been changed and uh, would have made it more realistic and better. But as far as the movie goes, that people are going to watch, that people are going to get into, that's not uh, just like you know screaming at the audience. You've been murdering Afghani's for 17 years. What the hell is wrong with you? It, it, it did a pretty good job of like being entertaining and conveying the message that like, <laughs> what, what are we doing in Afghanistan at this point? Yeah, that was, um, I have some questions for the, uh, along those lines with the main character. I, I thought he was a fairly contradictory character. I didn't quite understand what his, um, well, we'll get into it during the show. Well, I think Kyle, you've you've got some some good info on just the overall scope of what's been going on there the last seventeen, eighteen years, right? That's how long it has been going on, right? Right. Uh, I think October two thousand and one is when you could really count it started. I mean, if you want, you know, you could go all the way back to the nineteen eighties with the U.S. Army and the Mujahideen uh, in order to kind of combat Soviet influence in the country. But you know, modern day, yeah, right. But modern day military operations, yeah. I think October seventh, maybe two thousand and one, was when the first bombs dropped. Around that time is when the U.S. entered the arena there. And since then, I mean, it's just constantly been like one mistake after another. Uh, everybody comes in, 
And like you were saying, it's it's always like, you know, in this case, it was Stanley McChrystal is going to be the guy. He's just a better general. He, you know, it's just all we need is a better general, a better leader, a better strategy. But nobody ever looks at, like, is it worth it? <laughs> is it even winnable? Obviously, it isn't. But, you know, that that's the question you can't ask. Right. Yeah. It sounds like it sounds like politics, actually. Like, oh, we just need to vote for the right people and then everything will be better. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, it's just a matter of, you know, having the right guy in charge, the right leader, and, you know, you're not asking the right question, then you're not, you're not seeing what you need to see. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something that is very complicated, and I'm sure that most of the reports you see in the media are often contradictory or, or just talking points from politicians, right, or, or generals and whatnot, so it's not exactly uh, legitimate information. So to speak. Yeah, uh, fats are omitted uh, a lot. There's untruth inserted into the the narrative. Of course, like if you look at the war in Yemen, a common narrative you see in the mainstream media is that the Houthis, who are the kind of rebel groups in Yemen fighting against the Saudi coalition, are Iranian bat. And there's really absolutely no backing the Iranians give the Houthis. But this is just something that's constantly reported in the media. And so everybody just like assumes it's, you know, a fact, uh, you know, that's just how it is. The Iranian bad toothies, the Iranian bad toothies. And, and so that's why no, nobody ever understands the things going on in the Middle East because, you know, they just feed you so many lies. And then, of course, you get articles like Thomas Freeman's uh, Love Letter to Mohammed Ben Salman that runs in a big publication like the New York Times. And so any American who just reads the Times would assume that Mohammed bin Salman, the guy who just had a, a coup d'etat and assumed pretty much all the power in Saudi Arabia, is a good person. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's, it's, they're taking that um, Nazi Germany thing of, of just keep repeating the lie and eventually it becomes true. Or uh, the bigger the lie, the – what do they say about it? They uh, – I'm not so good at my Nazis. Robert, do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like they say, if I uh, just lie real big or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm trouble, having trouble remembering exactly what that, what that slogan is. But, yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's, it's something like the bigger the lie, the easier it is for people to believe because it's just too horrible to not believe or something like that. Right, yeah. It seemed like they were playing a lot on the psychology of, of people in crowds or whatever, you know, the masses. But uh, it's it's nice to have a show like yours, Kyle, where you can really dissect this stuff. I mean, you've only been speaking for to us for a couple of minutes already, and um, you've dropped a bunch of names that I don't even know who those people are. And uh, it's 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 nice to have someone like you who who can figure this stuff out. Yeah, and uh, any, anytime you're not sure, just ask because it's always hard, so hard to know like kind of where to start off uh, because. It, you know, the the facts are just so, the foreign policy is just not really reported or covered. Uh, if you watch Fox News all day, I mean, other than maybe seeing a couple, you know, videos of troops on Lockheed commercials, you really don't see hardly anything like the U.S. foreign policy isn't going on. <laughs> so it, it, you really don't know. Yeah, now, now, before we get into this movie, I kind of want to follow this line of thinking. Because you're right, we don't see much about it in movies and and television and in media as much as I think people saw back in the 70s, the 60s, you know, the whole anti-war movement, like the Vietnam War was a big deal. There was lots of protests. There's a lot of agitation as a result of it. Do you think that they have, and, and by they, I mean the, the power elite, have figured some something out, like how to minimize that, how to um, make it kind of go to the back of, of everyone's mind so that it's not at the forefront and it's not something that's that's become a big deal because I remember when Bush was doing stuff, there were protests and things like that, but it wasn't anything like the sixties. Um, and then Obama gets in, basically does the same stuff, but you know, he's a Democrat, so it's okay. 
And now Trump's doing the same thing that Obama was doing, but now they don't praise Trump unless he does something that's like a warmonger. If I could just jump in right before Kyle answers your question. Um, I just have a few thoughts on that particular thing. Uh, I know a lot this, these days wars are so much easier to ignore. Back in the Vietnam era, you, had, you got home you know, and you had maybe three, four, five channels of TV, and the evening news, they actually showed the war on the news. They would have on-the-spot reporters who you know, would show the carnage and the bodies, and I think that spurred a lot of it. And I don't oh, know, man. was it Bush or somebody so who made it so that you couldn't show, couldn't photograph coffins anymore? And then there's no more you know, war reporting, really, where there's just like video on the ground that gets shown on TV anymore. And then you've got the Internet, which is another competition for you know, eyeballs. So I think, I think it's, it's easier to be distracted these days, plus there's, there's less information of the horrors of it. Right, okay. And, and before we jump it back to, to you, Kyle, because I know we're throwing a lot of stuff at you here, but I think the draft was a big deal then, too, because everyone who was, quote-unquote, eligible to be drafted and the draft was on, ongoing, it meant that they're all at risk of going, right, of being selected. And so that, that brings it home for a lot of people versus now where there's the selective service thing, but there's no, like, active draft going on. So I think that there's a bit of a disconnect between, you know, nobody's personally feeling like they're at risk of having to be called up to go over there against their will. Yeah, well, I mean, all right, so to go back to the first question, to what happened to the movement, uh, I guess I'm speaking at this kind of as somebody on the outside. I wouldn't, you know, kind of consider myself to be somebody who was like a full-blown Rothbardian to like maybe 2012. And so when I kind of entered the movement, uh, I, I mean, like, you know, I was a Ron Paul supporter before that, like up to 09, but they said Rothbardian anti-war kind of 2012. Uh, the, you know, there wasn't really any anti-war movement to speak of. So I really haven't got to experience a situation uh, for the war movement like I had maybe for the Ron Paul Revolution in 2012 where I, I got to be a part of, like, a lot of people supporting this and a really great online community. At this point, it doesn't seem like there's a, a whole lot to the anti-war movement. I rarely see any rallies going on. People are much more upset by Trump saying something inappropriate and will go protest over that. But, you know, they'll never go protest over the war, Trump threatening to annihilate the North Korean people. Uh, so, I, and I think a lot of this was probably due to Barack Obama taking office. Uh, like you said, the, the anti-war movement was strong under uh, President Bush. At that time, I was uh, politically ambiguous slash maybe a Republican. And I remember all the time, like, you know, listening to Sean Handy and him being so upset about another celebrity bashing uh, Donald or, uh who Bush at that time for uh, whatever war was going on, either Afghanistan or Iraq, and, uh, you know, the Michael Moore types and everything. But then when Obama takes office, all these people support Obama, and he goes, and he's even more of a warmonger than George Bush in a lot of ways, the way he spread the drone war across the Middle East and moved so many U.S. troops into Africa, and uh, his pivot to Asia, creating tensions with China and the South China Sea and everything like this. Uh, but but because they support Obama, you know, the, the cognitive dissidents or whatever you want to call it, they're just unable to do it. So they've kind of just blocked out the wars for the most part. I mean, and I don't want to say everybody on the left and everybody who support Obama did this. There's a lot of people who are on the left who remained uh, very, uh, you know, to dedicate it to their philosophy during this time, but, you know, the mass of people didn't. And so now under Donald Trump, 
I guess that those people will immediately go back to being anti-war. It's way too hypocritical. So maybe give it a year or two, and then we'll have another anti-war movement on, on our hands. Yeah, I think. That, I hope so. Yeah, I think people generally have a very short uh, memory when it comes to this type of a thing and, and being contradictory. So I'm a bit surprised that they haven't shifted so quickly to Trump being bad, doing bad things, because he's doing the same things that Bush was doing. But, of course, there was that whole Obama guy in the middle doing it also. So it's just it's, yeah, it's bizarre. Yeah, the Russia gate thing has been a huge problem for that, too, because Russia has been made an enemy. Uh, then now the left is pushing for militarism, too. And so in places like Syria or somehow, I mean, Iran and Russia really, aren't allies in any significant way. I think they have more agreements than the United States does with Iran, maybe, but that really doesn't mean a whole lot because most politicians in the United States go out of their way to make up fats to bash Iran with all the time. Uh, but, but I do think that Russiagate narrative has really prohibited the United States from making better foreign policy decisions in the Middle East under Trump and has prevented the left from moving to a more anti-war position as well because now they have to stay anti-Russia. And so now, you know, they're bad on Ukraine and Libya because Russia's involved there, Syria, Iran, all these places. Yeah, you know, Kyle, listening to you, it, it reminded me of, of your appearance with uh, Patrick McFarlane from Liberty Weekly. And I think that was uh, libertyweekly.net slash 41, where you were on talking about Saudi Arabia. And after about a half an hour into it, he's just like, man, you're just saying all this stuff, and I, I feel so lost. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, he, he's a good dude, and, and uh, you're just a firehose of information. That's, uh, that's, that's a great thing. Well, I mean, thank you very much. I hope I'm not losing you too much because, you know, it's important that I try to you know, convey this in a way that understands it. But I really had a great time doing Pat's podcast, and uh, everybody should definitely check out Liberty Weekly. Not just Liberty Weekly for you one, but the other shows, too, because, uh, you know, he, he does a great show there. He sure does. All right, well, what do you say we start talking about this uh, Brad Pitt movie all right. War, War Machine, and generally we do a Google description, which I have pulled up here. It's very, very short, but uh, this came out in 2017, uh, just a few months ago. It's a drama comedy, which I find a little bit interesting. Uh, two hours and two minutes ended up being released on Netflix, and there's a little bit of a story behind that if uh, anyone wants to get into that portion. Uh, 6.1 on the IMDb, 53% Rotten Tomatoes, and 71% of Google users like it, so it's kind of a mixed bag on the reviews here, and uh, that's maybe another angle to talk about. But here's what the Google description says. A successful, charismatic four-star general, Glenn McMahon, played by Brad Pitt, leaps in like a rock star to command NATO forces in Afghanistan, only be taken down, only to be taken down by a journalist's no-holds-barred expose. And this, of course, stars Brad Pitt and had a budget, an eye-popping budget of $60 million, which seemed a little, uh, seems like a lot of money to me for, for what I saw on the screen, but what do you guys think of the Google description? I'll go with Robert. Yeah, not a lot to uh, comment on. I, I, I think what I don't know and what I'd like to know if, if somebody else does know is what was the hoopla and what caused it to be released in Netflix and not like some wider release or some proper release. Usually, I mean, Brad, I mean, a lot of stars are doing stuff on Netflix these days for the, you know, for the artistic kind of expressionary freedom sort of thing because Netflix has a more of a free reign kind of approach. Just, hey, do what you want to do and we'll put it out. Uh, but I mean, obviously, Brad Pitt is a huge star, so he could he could headline a a real big production that could be released in theater. So, what was it? Does anybody know? It's an adaptation of the book The Operators by Michael Hastings, and he was the journalist for Rolling Stone. 
Um, and then uh, in June of 2015, it says on the Wikipedia, Netflix acquired the distribution rights for the film, which was retitled War Machine. So it had been called The Operators uh, as per the book, and um, it was going to have direct ties to the characters, like Stanley McChrystal was going to be the character, uh, but then they kind of fictionalized it a bit uh, or did a kind of a, a veneer of not being the same people, but instead of McChrystal, now he's McMahon. Uh, and it looks like uh, there had been a budget issue between the producing companies, so New Regency and Rat Pack, with, with uh, the producers of Plan B, and thus Netflix had to step in and buy the distribution rights for the $60 million. So I guess they were uh, having trouble between the um, partners who were financing this, and they just wanted their money back. Okay, so I guess it didn't have, well, it doesn't sound like it had all that much to do with content. I guess it's a little disappointing they fictionalized it a little bit just because, I, I, I mean, it's not that fictional anyways. So, I mean, they too bad they just didn't keep on course, but maybe then they were worried about bumping into, like, legal issues or something like that. I mean, a lot of these people are, well, <laughs> up until today, uh, General Michael Flynn was somebody still very important in American thought, but not maybe not so much anymore. But he would have been a character in the movie had uh, they not, you know, fictionalized and changed the names a little bit. Yeah, now he was played by, um, I don't know, his avatar would have been the, the character played by Anthony Michael Hall, right? Yeah, uh, Pulver. Pulver, yeah. And, yeah, there's like a thin uh, a thin mask of um, who would have been Robert Gates and who would have been Hillary Clinton and uh, Brad Pitt being the crystal. And then at the very end, uh, you know, spoilers all the time, but Russell Crowe comes in and he was uh, Petraeus, right? Yeah, yeah. I I love how the the first and the last scene of the movie are you know both generals walking through the airport. I thought that was a, a brilliant uh, you know kind of a, a cinematic move to make. Yeah, yeah. that was good history repeating. Yeah, and they're all like Here full of themselves again. and cocksure and like all you know on a mission you know like the, just that bounce in their step like they're gonna go kick some ass kind of a deal. Yeah, they were gonna run over everybody who didn't get out of their way. Uh, you know they they get things done. Yeah, all right. So uh, let's get into the scene by scene, guys. Um, we could start uh, going through some notes here, but uh, generally, this is a movie about um, an embedded reporter who was doing an expose, doing a, I guess, a, um, a biographic write-up of, of General, and he got exposed to a lot of um, kind of behind-the-scenes talk, locker room talk that uh, ended up in his story. Kind of blew up the whole um, the whole narrative between what the military was allegedly doing and then what they, how they saw the, uh, the leadership and the directions coming from the politicians. Yeah. The, the article uh, that Michael Hastings wrote was the runaway general. And in the article, he mentioned and quoted some of the people who surrounded uh, uh, general McChrystal, who uh, the, this group of people is kind of known as our Hastings titled the operators. And so the book, the operators is about, you know, this group of people and, uh, the, the unflattering comments about Biden and uh, Obama is what got McChrystal fired. Uh, that might be something worth linking to in the show notes page. For anybody who hasn't read the article, it's from way back 2010, but it's definitely worth reading. I mean, this is an article that, that took down the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan, right? He, he was the commander of U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Articles released, and like a day later, he's done. So Yeah, and really what he did wrong, so to speak, was just kind of, what, badmouth? the top brass a little bit, right? Yeah. Uh, Question I, I Biden and Obama a little bit. And, yeah. I, and then, and then I the drunkenness maybe. 
<laughs> yeah, the drunkenness, uh, the the questioning and the insulting of Obama, Biden and Obama. But I don't think they were too happy with him before this. Uh, the war wasn't going well, and he had already, uh, as we'll see later in the movie, kind of uh, hurt Obama, went against Obama's policy wishes by uh, leaking a report to uh, the press. Right, for the, the, the additional troops, which is a huge point of contention for me as well. Um, and Daniel, do you have do you have specific scene by scene notes, or do you just want to get into issues and just wherever it takes us? Uh, I'm fine just going wherever it takes us. Um, I took a page full of notes just as as I was watching the movie, so there's not really any theme to it. It's just kind of in timeline order. All right. Well, what's the first thing you got there? Well, I wrote a note that said proportional theory, and I think that that was a nod to um, the scale of the attacks against the United States as um, done via Afghanistan versus what we've been doing to Afghanistan. And by we, I mean the U.S. military and how out of scale that is. Right, right. If you if you attribute September 11 attacks to anybody in Afghanistan, the three people, 3,000 people that died there versus what the United States military has done to the Afghanistan country is multiplied magnitudes levels of destruction and disruption and death. I got the sense of watching this movie just uh, 10 minutes in. It immediately reminded me of the movie Casino. And for those of you who have not seen the movie Casino, it's about a bunch of mobsters who send a bunch of thugs out into the desert to fuck up some shit and to steal and to destroy and basically to rob people. And that's what this movie was and what we're doing, I guess, in Afghanistan, except they're not necessarily robbing the direct people that they're there in the desert with. They're robbing them of their lives and their livelihood. But they're also robbing, you know, American taxpayers. And I say taxpayers, you know, in quotation marks. So American citizens who are being stolen from, who definitely, even, even if you support government, the chances are that you support this war 16, 17 years in. I mean, what, what is the percentage of American population that actually supports this thing? It's got to be in the single digits at the most. Because even, even the main character here, Brad Pitt, McChrystal, he does a speech later on in the movie when Tilda Swinson like, confronts him as the German politician lady, where he talks about how you create enemies. And that's what the, the uh, narrator, the voice of the journalist, does at the beginning of the movie, where he talks about how you can't fight an insurgency and win, because insurgents are just normal people. And every time you kill one, you create five more. And Pitt knows this, the character. So I assume that was taken from a real speech by the real McChrystal, in Germany when he was out stumping for troops. So what is his plan? My whole beef with him this entire time, and the whole time I'm watching this movie, is, well, I'm going to go win this war, but I know you can't win it. So what's your plan for winning it, McChrystal? Well, I'm going to go out into this desert where there's nobody, and I'm going to occupy it or something. Okay, well, that directly contradicts your whole idea of we're a security force, and we're going to protect you from the bad people. You sound go just ahead. like the, you sound just like uh, the Marine in the movie, Cole, who, when McChrystal is at, or McMahon is up there explaining the plan to him, he's like, this doesn't make any sense to me. What, you're telling us that we're going to go out there and secure the area, but we can't shoot them? <laughs> and, and they're just all sitting there dumbfounded as McChrystal is trying to explain his grand strategy to him. And this is exactly you know, how you feel right here now, is like, what, what could it possibly be? Well, in the, and it's never presented in the movie, other than he's going to take this province that nobody wants or cares about and then he keeps getting told to leave it alone. And then he can't explain his plan to this soldier like you're talking about because he doesn't know what it is or it doesn't make sense to him either. So all he does is say, well, you better convince yourself somehow <laughs> to the soldier, to the poor soldier guy who's like, okay. It's, it seemed but, like the idiots yeah. leading the, the, the poor slobs. 
I don't know. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I just wanted to point out, like, that's not something that the movie leaves out. That's something that American foreign policy leaves out. Um, sure. It, it, I mean, this is, what is this the is actual... reality. This wasn't a fictionalized part of the movie, is that this is the problem, is that there's no solution whatsoever. Right. It seems that's why I likened it to Casino, where they don't want it to end. Like, the mafia dons in Casino are these guys sitting in a shady back room in Chicago. But in this movie, they're the heads of Raytheon and General Dynamics and Bell Helicopter and Obama and all these people who are getting rich off of this whole scheme. And they don't want it to end. So there's no terms of what, what are the victory conditions? How do we know when we've won? Are we just here? I thought it was hilarious when they went to Germany and they're like, here, you can have your German troops, but they're never going to leave the base. It's like, okay, so everybody's just going to go there and party it up and spend money that they don't, that isn't theirs. Great. Okay. Well, at least they're not going out killing people, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is the thing. It's all about optics, right? So when the uh, NATO releases or the United States releases their numbers to the senators and the U.S. people, they needed to say that there's, you know, 20,000 American troops and 20,000 other allied coalition troops. That way, to the American people, this isn't an American effort, because if it's only an American effort, then the American people don't want to be a part of it. And so, uh, you know, that's the lie they have to tell. And so the German guys just sit on the base. Well, no reporter is actually, other than Michael Hastings, is going to go to Afghanistan and say, hey, why aren't the Germans ever leaving the base? And then they're not going to sit there and write a report about that. There's, you know, only few and far between people who, who will, you know, have the guts to go out and do that, and they're generally ignored by the mainstream media. And so we get a condition where nobody has any idea about this, but they just hear, oh, you know, there's, there's a bunch of foreign fighters over there helping us as well. But they were just window dressing, right, just to, like, fill in on the propaganda? Like, yeah, yeah. It's just numbers. It's all about numbers. I was talking about this on my show today, actually, uh, because in Somalia, we're fighting against al-Shabaab, but several uh, members of the Somali National Army, which is the army that the United States is trying to train in Somalia to make it the country's police force, has uh, several former defectors of al-Shabaab in the ranks. And one of the reasons I'm sure it's for is because there has to be a good number of people. They, they need, they're begging for troops to go out and be the, the American police force. And so they'll take anyone they could get. And so if this is window dressing, you know, good, they got the numbers, they got the bodies. Yeah, that sounds a lot like how they depicted the um, Afghani soldiers in this movie, where they were, they, they got the guys, but they were just lazy and just sitting there and they didn't seem to understand like what they were being trained to do and what they wanted to do it seemed as if even the population was really they didn't really care too much about being part of this great big country they just cared about their little village or their house or their you know their neighbors and whatnot and they saw these foreign invaders and i think that the math lesson that he gives at the end there where you know there's 10 insurgents you kill two you make 20 uh, and that's the ron paul blowback thing right like if if we weren't over there they wouldn't care about us right like it would be a non-issue. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, when uh, Scott Horton was on my show, he even mentioned to me that uh, he saw a poll that said, I think like 50% or, or some high percentage of Afghanis don't even know 9-11 happened. <laughs> they're not even aware of the reason that, you know, the, the quote-unquote reason that they're being bombed. Right. Yeah. So it's just, it's, it's totally bizarre. Um, I got the plot pulled up and that might help bring us towards a bit of a, a narrative here. So, um, it says that four-star generals brought in to replace a guy because they want more effective leadership, and he was like this rock star in Iraq with some of the methods that he used and employed with his counterinsurgency. 
and they say that he needs to do an assessment of the situation, visit Karzai, go see areas of the country, and he's given um, wide latitudes on how he can write this assessment. But then when he's ready to submit it to Obama and, and everyone, the uh, the Secretary of State, I think, is that who it was, who tells him, no, we have to wait for the elections. And this was an interesting point because uh, later on, he's like, he has Body, the um, Afghani soldier guy with him. And he's like, yeah, the people vote, but they don't know why. They don't know what they're voting for. They they vote for whoever the village elders tell them to vote for so they don't get shot. Right. I, I mean, there's a couple things uh, just to fill in on that part. In real life, McChrystal, uh, the reason, or part of the reason he got the job is because he was just known as the guy that would get things done. Uh, he apparently, you know, had some quote-unquote success in Iraq. He killed the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq at the time, so Wahari. Uh, he was known as somebody who, even though he was a high-ranking officer, would typically just go out on, I guess, general, like, scouting or, you know, protection, whatever kind of basic operations the military does with general soldiers without, like, a big... Uh, security detail or anything like that. So he was uh, portrayed as kind of like maybe a, a, the way a General Mattis is portrayed today as kind of like a soldier soldier and somebody who's, you know, is going to be the right guy because he he's the guy that gets things done. He's no nonsense. He's not corrupt, everything like that. Uh, and then the, uh, the other point is uh, just that the guy who was the general before, I think it, it was just more or less a political thing. Like this was Bush's general. Obama took office in uh, what, January 09, he was out probably by April 09, and then uh, McChrystal uh, was put in place, I think, in June of that year, June of 09, and that's kind of where the movie starts. Okay, so it was all about just change guys? Yeah, yeah, I mean, Obama had this new policy, and so if you just keep the old guy in place, everybody's, you know, what what's different? You're going to add more troops, we just took troops away. Uh, so uh, they needed a way to sell the war, and one of the ways to do that was to put McChrystal in. Uh, apparently, McChrystal and Obama had never really met. Maybe they had, like, met once or twice, like, in a group of people. You know, you, you say hi, shake their hand, uh, your wife's nice, blah, 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 and you go your separate ways. And so uh, Obama really didn't know the guy he was even putting in charge of the, the, uh, of the Afghan war, and uh, that's kind of a plot line in the movie as well. Yeah, Robert, you want to jump in on that? Um, well, I kind of wanted to talk about um, Karzai a little bit. I wanted to, you know, there's a meeting that he gets to in the, sort of the beginning of the movie where Pitt goes and meets Karzai, and he's played by Ben Kingsley as this kind of savvy, he knows the game, like politician, bureaucrat, sleazeball kind of dude. But he knows his position. I mean, he's like a, he's a, he's a figurehead. He's a, he's a puppet of the U.S. government. And it's funny, there's a scene later on where Pitt makes a big deal that he needs to get Karzai's permission to go on this assault. And Karzai's like, no, you don't. Since when have you ever asked for my permission? Okay, you have it. Here's my rubber stamp. Who cares? I don't know why you would even come to me. Uh, but, yeah, it's just like a theater that, I mean, he doesn't even want to go out on the big tour that Pitt goes out on to. He's like, no, I, uh, people wouldn't be happy to see me. I know, I've seen the country. I don't know. It, it just struck me as a, a massive farce but a realistic one, and the most fairly realistic at least, in that these people have no illusions about, or at least Karzai doesn't, of like all their efforts are going to be some grand success, whereas Pitt is sort of portrayed as this true believer who really thinks he's going to get some done and grow. He keeps saying he wants to like build up Afghanistan and give everybody jobs and whatnot, and the best way he could do that would be to leave, and he gets told that later on in the movie by some random villager guy who's just like, Please leave. Please, just go. Get out of here. Stop. Stop helping. 
But and so it's an inconsistent character for me. This McChrystal guy does he does he know that his job is pointless and useless and counterproductive, or is he a true believer? I I he kept seeming to waffle back and forth. I mean, I I think he's a true believer. I think you know McChrystal was a true believer in his policy. Uh, one thing that uh, Michael Hastings talks about in his article, The Runaway General is just how much hubris um, McChrystal had. And I guess, like, when he was a baseball pitcher, he would, like, call strikeouts. So he would get, like, two strikes on a guy that called to this crowd, like, I'm going to strike him out with the next one and throw, like, a fastball right down the middle and strike the guy out or something, right? So I think him going to Carside was him, like, just being so wholeheartedly believing that this policy is important and that what you have to do is you have to get consent from the people. And Karzai, who is a posthume, putting his name on the Americans going in and killing posthumes in uh, that city, uh, Mar- Marja, uh, would somehow fits the problem. Like, I, I think it's just, it just goes to show like how delusional McChrystal was in thinking this would work. He, he just like, yeah, I'm going to make it work. It's going to work because I'm Stanley McChrystal. Yeah, it did seem, in the, yeah. at least in the movie, that he was a, a true believer, and he kept making reference to like, well, we need a, you know, we need to treat the Afghan situation as if it's a child, and it needs two parents. Um, it needs us, the Americans, to be one of the parents, and it needs Karzai, their leadership, to be the the other parent. Right, and at one point, uh, one of the diplomats, I, I forget which guy, maybe it was uh, the Pat McKinnon character told him, like, straight up, he was like, hey, you know, there's no parade for you at the end of this. And McChrystal just can't take it, you know, and tells him to go to hell. So, you know, that, that's interesting. That even when you're told the truth, you just can't hear it sometimes. Yeah, he seemed to learn the truth many times during the movie, but either his job depended on him not understanding the truth. I mean, how, I, what would you do in his position? I guess just quit? Because, I don't know, you, you learn that, I mean, your entire job is as a this general guy, and your your whole mission is to violently get things done. Apparently, right? That's that's the job of a soldier is to violently reach objectives and to kill the people that need to be killed. They think, and and then they're faced with a situation like a Vietnam or an Iraq or an Afghanistan, some quagmire where you're an invader and you're just fighting the local resistance force who don't like to have invaders in their country. They don't like to have their wives and sisters getting raped and murdered and you know, you, you resist. It's what you do when there's a foreign invader. So you can't, I mean, you can't, you can't kill your enemies faster than you can make them. So what do you do? Just, do you just have that cognitive dissonance? Do you, are we willfully ignorant? Do you just swallow the Kool-Aid and man, rah, 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 gung-ho, our way, right or wrong? Or do you just wisen up and speak out or just get out? I, I don't know. I think it's, it's a shit situation to be in. Yeah. I mean, he's no different than the communists, right? Like, <laughs> they didn't do like you know he talks about his program as coin the counterinsurgency program and he you know he's like I'm gonna do the counterinsurgency thing right I'm gonna order my troops not to kill civilians I'm gonna make sure they handle everything the right way and at the end of the day people don't just like you can't just walk in with the military and patrol people's streets and they're they're not gonna be okay with it it's just not gonna happen but if you never ask that question and just say what did the guy before me do wrong. And when you look in the mirror, you say, you know, I'm Stanley McChrystal. I'm going to do it right. I, I really think that was just his policy. I think he had a, a diehard belief in and may even to this day say, like, had I not been fired by Obama uh, in two years, Afghanistan would have been a flourishing uh, paradise of democracy. <laughs> 
like that's a, a big improvement. Um, <laughs> uh, I looked into McChrystal just a little bit, you know, in, in the Wikipedia um, vortex that you can get into when you start clicking through on, on one thing and then that leads to another. And it turns out that, uh, you know, shortly after he was dismissed, he retired and then started um, a company and, and he's on all these boards of directors with all these other big name companies. And he's actually one of the companies he started is, is with Michael Flynn, which is kind of interesting. But uh, he talks about how he thinks that one of the things that will help fix things in the United States is to have compulsory service, not in the military, just compulsory service for everyone uh, at a certain age to spend a year or two doing something for the government. And it will teach them civics and to be actively political and to appreciate all the great things that government benevolence has bestowed upon them. Uh, by essentially conscripting them, <laughs> uh, making them a slave for a year or two, uh, so you know you can love your uh, love your op oppressor, which is kind of a bizarre thing. But he still talks about this um, to this day. Yeah, that's don't they do that in Switzerland? I want to say everybody has to do two years. I'm pretty sure Israel. In the military, Israel also. I, I think so. Yeah, it sounds like a nightmare to me. I yeah. mean, I'm I'm, I'm anti-slavery, so <laughs> sounds like a terrible idea to me. I don't know what else to say. I, it sounds like, you know, public school, but 10 times worse, right? Like, now you get two extra years of indoctrination. It's up to you. Can't, well, I mean, if you're rich enough in the U.S., you probably bribe your way out of it. I'm sure Trump's kids wouldn't have had to go through it. But still, I, I, I mean, it would be quite a, a problem. Yeah. It seems like a logical step if you're a government indoctrinator that you would want that. But this is McChrystal saying this, Daniel? Yep, yep. And and he's, you know, giving uh, lectures and whatnot at, at various universities and speeches and presentations and whatnot, talking about this kind of a thing. Right. Well, good to know he hasn't learned anything. Good job. Yeah, that seems to be the what lament of the uh, reporter is like, hey, I broke this big story and nothing happened. <laughs> I mean, the guy got fired, but it's just changed guys again. Yeah, yeah. and it doesn't seem like the military is going to run out of generals anytime soon to throw into the meat grinder. I mean, they could just Not promote another one. Funny. Uh, one, one note I have, and I thought that this was kind of interesting because I know there's a whole backstory to this, is he's out doing his assessment of the country and he's like at this poppy field. And he's like, why, why don't you grow something else? And they're like, well, cotton would grow great here, but that would compete with domestic producers in the United States and the government doesn't want that. So we grow heroin instead. Yeah, that was funny. So this is like a huge deal in, in the Afghanistan war is how they handled the opium thing because this is like one of the main crops in Afghanistan uh, just prior to the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, the Taliban had pretty much effectively eliminated the opium production in Afghanistan because they were seeking international recognition, not because they have any moral problem with opium. And I think prior to uh, that happening, they were actually uh, involved in the opium trade. Now, post-American invasion, uh, the, the Taliban need money, so they hop right into the opium trade. And now uh, the provinces of Afghanistan, Helmand Province, which is mentioned and covered in the movie, uh, that's where the General McChrystal decides to have this big counterinsurgency experiment. Uh, has an overwhelming number of uh, opium now, and it's uh, you know benefiting the Taliban greatly. It's pretty much financing their entire spring offensive. So uh, the United States has taken to bombing the opium fields and the opium production plants. Of course, the huge problem here is is like. Who do you think is working in the opium production plants? It's just, you know, the local students. It's probably, you know, the local teenager and the local, you know, woman trying to make a couple extra butts. You know, they go and they cut some opium because, you know, that's the only thing that, you know, they, they can make money on out there. 
So when, when you talk about it, it sounds like it's the Taliban doing it, but in the movie it's presented as it's the Americans doing it. Is it a bit of both in reality, or is the movie different yeah, than the reality? Yeah, I think this is from the American perspective, and from the American perspective it's hard because you know I, I don't know exactly if this was something they bumped into with the cotton uh, I, I had not, I haven't heard that story exactly, but I know that like if the Americans want to go and get rid of the opium crops, I, I mean that that's a huge cash crop for the the rural Afghan people, and they may be unwilling uh, to make a change, and they really don't care. I, I mean, uh, what does you know the morals of the American people and, and their thoughts on drugs have anything to do with the Afghan people? I, I, from my understanding, the Afghan people really don't uh, export any illegal heroin to the United States anyways. Most of it goes to neighboring Iran and uh, other countries in that region. So uh, I guess it, it really doesn't make sense to go after it, but I don't think the civilian population would be receptive to it, even if there wasn't U.S. regulations getting in the way, uh, which I'm sure there's tons of that kind of stuff that happens. Okay, well, I guess I was more referring to I thought that I've seen a meme going around that like the U.S. soldiers are actually protecting the poppy fields and that the cultivation of the poppies are under the direction of the military. Is, is that untrue? This is what I get for, I, for learning my news from memes. I, I mean, I can't say. I, w I would have to look that up. It's just something I, I'm not sure of at the, at the time. Yeah, I've heard that same thing, Daniel. I mean, I don't know if it's true or not, but I have I have seen videos of troops saying, yeah, we're regarding the poppy fields. I mean, not necessarily that they're doing it all the time, but I've seen videos, so they've done it at, at least at some point in the past. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's happened uh, during the war in Afghanistan. I mean, if you look at what's happened, the, the Pentagon, or uh, the, I think the Inspector General just released a report on uh, child sexual abuse in Afghanistan, and there were several soldiers that told them that they felt like there was an unspoken policy that if it was going on, you just didn't do anything about it. Uh, and that's kind of the way they wanted it. And so I'm sure they have no problem turning a blind eye to child sex abuse. They're, they're, they're not going to have a problem with a field full of opium. Right. And the old blind eye. All right, well... All right, Daniel, what else you got? Well, I've got uh, his quote where he says, a good leader lives by a set of rules and a great leader knows when to break them. And that's when he leaks his report because the election pause uh, prevents him from implementing his plan and he's not getting any face time with Obama. He does that 60 minutes interview, kind of undermines him and sort of forces Obama's hand, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and I felt like that was a bit of a bold move because, you know, putting on my like patriotic American hat here, you send this guy over there yeah. and then you tie his hands, right? You tell him he can't do anything. He's got to wait for this meaningless election to, to happen. And you, you're not talking to him at all. He's getting no direction from anyone. And he's a guy who's like, you know, this rock star ass kicker guy. Um, it, it only makes sense to me that he would get frustrated. From his perspective, yes. I see your point. Yeah, that hat is, is making me have lice or something. I'm taking that hat off. <laughs> yes, please. Gross, ugly hat. But Yeah, I, I think it's pretty clear that as much as Mitt Crystal went out on his own and did, and did some pretty reckless things, that Obama really mismanaged the war in Afghanistan and focused all of his attention on Obamacare, really unfortunately, rather than uh, you know maybe making you know focusing and investing some political capital and not putting additional troops in Afghanistan, and then actually closing Guantanamo Bay rather than just uh, ignoring the work or the you know crimes against humanity of Cheney and the CIA uh, during the Bush administration, the torture that went on there, you know, decides to focus on some meaningless health reform that only hurts American people. So 
<laughs> it really disappointing. Well, I, for me, I, I don't see these wars as ever being designed to be won. These these designed these wars are designed to be quagmires that are just there for the military industrial complex to continue to have an excuse to sell arms to the United States government. I don't I don't really see I mean uh, otherwise there would be some sort of a objective Right. I mean, back in the day when you had a war, you would take the enemy capital and then that would be pretty much it. Or you'd have an objective of some kind. Here, you're just occupying an area and there are no military objectives other than when maybe the Taliban pops up and has some sort of an offensive and, OK, they got a stronghold over here, sort of, sort of. And, OK, then we got to go and fight that there. But for the most part, you're just kind of sitting there. And I think the troops understand that. So their morale is in the garbage. They've checked out of it except for the fresh new gung-ho recruits, maybe, who knows, and maybe these weird general guys that are immune to reality. But for me, it seems like these wars have been a massive success. Yeah, just overwhelming, just gobsmacking success. Lot, billions of dollars gone to waste, trillions, essentially. Billions of dollars soaked from the American citizens, lives destroyed, and uh, yeah, so I don't know. Well, I, I mean, I think just the interest on the war debt for, for the you know, war since 2001 is going to end up being $8 trillion, $5 billion of which is all we've already paid. Uh, I, I think the wars have cost a trillion of dollars now uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan since 2001. And like you said, it's been an, an absolute waste and counterproductive, if anything. I mean, the, this is, you know, that could be the development of Asia. Uh, you know, the, there's been billions, or not maybe hundreds of millions probably of people lifted out of poverty across Asia and Africa. If you look at the advancements made of the billions of people that live in India and China, I mean, this could really be spreading wealth to Central and South Asia and, and through the Middle East, but rather, you know, it's stuck as a burning hellhole at this point. I mean, there's bombs going off every day. There's people starving to death. There's lunatics running around everywhere that are willing to blow themselves up. Uh, if you look at Syria, I mean, you know, there's head-chopping lunatics over there. In, in Libya, they're, they're trading slaves. And so, yeah, I guess if you're, you know, your goal is weapons and instability, then you could not have been more successful than what's happened really all the way from Mali to the Philippines. Yeah, I think this has really been the height of creation of an enemy. I mean, they had the Cold War for so long, and they, that was so successful, and it allowed for such a massive military buildup. But then when the, the Soviets fell, then they had to do something, and they had to come up with an enemy, and Saddam was okay for a little while, and then now they got this amorphous war on terror that can never end. It's just brilliant. So I don't know how long is it going to last. I mean, it, I, a couple more decades, 100 years, 200 years, I mean... Maybe the fall of the United States will probably end it maybe eventually, but I don't know, man. There's no, there's no win conditions because every time you kill a terrorist, quote-unquote terrorist, you make five more, like the movie says even. So, yeah, it's just an endless excuse. And I, I don't really see the American people finally going, having, getting fed up enough and forcing somebody's hand to bring the troops back home. It just seems to be something that will keep going on. I mean, soldiers, people keep signing up to be in the military. I even know one. They just keep doing it. I, I don't know how, I mean, the government indoctrination camps have really prepared kids by not teaching them anything because they come out of high school and then they go into the military. And it's just shocking that this still happens in the age of the Internet. I mean, back when all we had was network news, I could give some sense of understanding to kids that would do it. But these days, when the information is freely available to anybody with a smartphone and they still go and sign up, to be in the military. I mean, it makes sense that, you know, opportunity at home is really difficult with the minimum wage and all the regulations. 
So your options are welfare or military a lot of the time, and a lot of kids are still picking military, which is great for the government, of course. You can feed them into the meat grinder. Uh, it, it seems like the next evolution in uh, governmenting technology. <laughs> That's what it seems to me. <laughs> Government 2.0. Like these are 18-year-old, you know, kids a lot of times. I mean, uh, you know, some of these guys make the decision, you know, at 16, 17 years old and start hanging out with the Army recruiters at that age. And then, it, you know, it, you know, I think at times, like, they could even enlist before turning 18. And so uh, I, I think at the youth, the decision is made. And then, you know, the, just the glorification of the media, one of the things, one of the only times I really watch, uh, like, network TV is I watch a half hour of Jeopardy every night. And Lockheed Martin, or no, it's Raytheon, has a military minute where they just glorify veterans for a minute. And so, yeah, like you said, like, you could get on your s smartphone and Google, but, you know, they tell you that those are Russian propaganda sites and, you know, not to believe places like antiwar.com or Consortium News or the Libertarian Institute because, you know, they have uh, ideas influenced by Russia uh, that are negative for the United States. And so, <laughs> like you said, it's all about the indoctrination. And, boy, to be able to make that decision at 18 would be difficult, especially at times, too, when they push the idea that, you know, that's what's going to get you the girls <laughs> you know, I mean, like, what what hoops 18-year-olds will jump through to get girls uh, is pretty much endless. Yeah, and you see those TV ads where they sell you as going on some grand adventure and saving the world and making the world safe for freedom and whatever. It's really, really disgusting and heavy-handed stuff. Daniel, you were going to say something, I know. Oh, that's that's long gone now, but you know uh -huh. how we do. But I, I wanted to bring it back to the, uh, the election in Afghanistan because... Brad Pitt had a, an interesting line. He said, it's important, that long line of men, that shuffle there, that shuffle towards freedom. <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious. He said it was like the moon landing, and, and by voting for their, for their oppressor that they were going to gain freedom and, and how important it was and how amazing it was. Yeah, it reminded me of the meme that's like, what do we want? Freedom. Who's going to give it to us? Politicians. What don't we understand? Freedom. <laughs> Politicians do not grant freedom, people. Sorry to say. If you're, gonna, if you're waiting for freedom to be given to you by a politician, don't hold your breath. It's not how that works. Yeah, right. and, and the most interesting part of that was then uh, McChrystal's Afghan analyst guy, and, and you already brought this up saying that, like, the people don't understand elections. They're like, the president's alive. Why are we picking a new leader? This doesn't make any sense to me. And we just have to vote for who the, the tribal leaders tell us anyway, so... McChrystal sees him marching towards freedom, but these people that don't even understand the ceremony of the whole thing anyway, so it, it's absolutely meaningless to them. And it just shows why McChrystal's plan would never work. Like, like his plan is to help these people, but he clearly doesn't even understand them in the slightest. Yeah, and he was trying to help them by building, right? By creating jobs and trying to hand out money and become their buddy. But that just smacks of central planning, doesn't it? Like, trying to I don't know, like trying to make decisions for people and, and throwing money at them uh, generally doesn't work very well. I mean, you run into the economic calculation problem. If anything, the people were freer before these elections. Like they were just doing their own thing, albeit a bit primitive. But McChrystal seemed to think, or Brad Pitt guy, seemed to think that they were Neanderthals and they just needed to adopt democratic processes and central planning to get their economy going and get jobs and security and, and all of these uh, other unicorns and fairy tales. Yeah, he's definitely a believer in his own ability to accomplish great things, and therefore he's probably believing in the ability of other individuals to accomplish great things through the, the process of central planning. 
for sure. He, he definitely struck me as a central planner. When he was having that first meeting with Karzai, it struck, it struck me as him, two central planners talking, even though Karzai was definitely the more jaded of the two, going, yeah, right, okay, you're going to do that? Sure. That's what the last guy said, but okay. Hey, what's the new plan? Uh, Same as the old plan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, uh, I don't know. Uh, it seems to me that this, this McChrystal guy is – I didn't get a full sense. I didn't really fully understand who or what he was, I guess, is my big complaint. And I guess that that's probably intentional in that he doesn't even understand himself or what his plan was or he doesn't have a clear idea. I mean, the idea that some military general guy is going to also be a fantastic, great central planner slash world builder type person, that is the ultimate yeah, in hubris. Even, the, even like you got your, um, you know, you're like really highly intelligent central planner types. Um, that I mean, it's the ultimate hubris that even that they could do it. And then this guy is clearly not like some super genius. But like we've talked about on the show, and the, you know, it's it's the, the fatal conceit. It's the idea that anybody has the knowledge to plan out, let alone the morality of it. It's like, yeah, I know how to run your life better than you do, and I'm going to force you how to do it my way. It's a joke. The fact that anybody believes it is is a mystery and a miracle to me. If you just look at it on a base level, I guess you just never have to think about it. Or you just never think about it. Yeah, I, yeah. Right I mean, as far as I go, that that Karzai quote was amazing <laughs> when, when he goes, "Oh, so this plan is just like the old plan. Oh, but you're gonna be better at it." <laughs> that that's one of my favorite parts of the movie. Yep, change guys. <laughs> just change guys. Keep the show running. Nothing gets done. Everything continues to fall further and further into shit. Yeah. So let's let's talk about their operation, which was called Moshtarak Operation Moshtarak, which was them. I guess, going into this village and trying to take it over from the um, Taliban. And it really seemed to me like just one or two people shooting at them caused them to freak out and like get all like they're in the shit. And uh, it was bizarre. Like that whole, that whole scene where they're going into the village and then they start shooting mortars at trying to, trying to get those guys on the rooftop and they end up killing the kid and, and blowing up that guy's house. And then they try to pay him some money. Um, did you guys kind of get a sense of like it didn't take a whole lot of defensive force to almost repel this elite fighting force that was coming in to this village? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the argument against against the gun control advocates use, right? That you're going to stop these great American military with AK-47s and AR-15s. It's like, yeah, yeah, you are, because <laughs> apparently that's that's all it takes. Yeah, these guys aren't much, but it, I mean, when you got the morale of these soldiers, which is already down in the dumps anyway, they don't want to be there. They're out doing this crap that they don't believe in because there's no clear objective. And they're not even allowed to be murderous soldiers, right? You can only shoot them if, if you clearly see a weapon and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, the courageous restraint. And yeah, you're giving medals for courageous restraint. So, yeah, they're super unhappy. And then, yeah, you, you shoot at them a little bit, and, yeah, they're just, they, just get, they just lose it. <laughs> At least in the, the soldiers in the movie did. I'm sure this is you know, done up for dramatic effect, but yeah, they did not take it well. I mean, if you watch this movie versus any kind of other war movie, like a World War II war movie or Band of Brothers or something like that, I mean, two very different types of soldier. One, one soldier's just like, yeah, a mortar just dropped right next to me and blew up my friend and whatever, and I'm, I'm upset about it, but yeah, it's just kind of the way things happen. These guys, yeah, like one guy shoots at them a little bit and doesn't even kill any of them. And they just get super crazy. 
one guy goes all Rambo on him. Yeah, I think that's a real interesting thing. I'm sure a little bit of it is part of, like, maybe the fiction lies. I'm sure this, you know, wasn't an actual battle scene. But when they're standing on the rooftop looking at the guys and they're going, do they have a gun? Can we shoot them? And then, you know, they start getting shot at. I think a lot of it just kind of shows maybe the low morale of the, the troops. I mean, you know, they really they have to stand there and get shot at, <laughs> trying to see if the other side has a gun. So, you know what I mean? It's almost like the other side gets to shoot at you before you have a chance to shoot at them. Uh, so, so that part was really interesting. And uh, I, I'm guessing at this point, a lot of the these are Marines, and so I'm sure a lot of these guys have already done tour, tours in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and so they're probably just tired of it. I mean, this one doesn't even make sense. At least, you know, the first time they went to Afghanistan, they were killing the people that did 9/11. And now, I, I mean, who are they killing? They're, they're not killing people in uniforms. They're killing people in robes and sandals. And, <laughs> you know, I, the, these, these are just the local villagers. These are just, I mean, at this point, the Taliban is just the Pashtun resistance. They're the Pashtuns that don't want to be ruled by the United States. And so, I, I mean, I guess to want to be Pashtun and independent is now a warrant for the Americans to kill you in Afghanistan. Uh, yeah, him going Rambo was interesting, and then shooting the kid and then paying the family $2,500 for the kid being dead. This is part of the coin doctrine that, you know, when you kill a civilian, you got to pay off the family that way. You know, hopefully they don't go and blow you up one day. Now, did he shoot the kid with his rifle, or was that one of his mortars, one of his uh, shots at the, at the guys on the roof that missed? Because they pan up and they show the hole in the guy's roof and he's got the dead kid and then his other son he's holding. Yeah, that was yeah, my I, I took assumption. It, yeah, I took it to be the mortar because I didn't see the guy, the Rambo guy, kill him. Yeah, that was the coal guy. Right, and then they got mad at him for being there when he shouldn't have been because they dropped leaflets and stuff saying that if you're not the enemy, you need to leave. You need to leave your own home. I mean, yeah, if a marauding invaders military are going to come in, I'd probably try and leave but he has no obligation to leave. Well, yeah, and as bad as that is, if you look at what the United States has done in Iraq and Syria with those leaflets, and they, they dropped leaflets over a town in Syria saying that if you have any tarps around your home, of course there have been fighting in Syria for six years, so I'm sure a lot of these homes have roof damage and you know holes in them and stuff like that. If you have a tarp on your home, that makes you liable to get hit by an airstrike for the United States or to flee a city like Raqqa or Mosul that had hundreds of thousands of civilians in them meant that you could be uh, hit by an airstrike by the United States. There were several occurrences of the United States bombing people trying to paddle across the river on boats, and they were just bombing everyone who leaves because they didn't want to let an ISIS uh, fighter go. I I can't imagine we're ever going to run out of countries where people don't look like us and talk like us. But I, I, I have to imagine that uh, something like this in a country where the people look like us and talk like us, like speak English and, you know, their customs are the same and they essentially, you know, they're a mishmash of people. It just wouldn't work because every single person would just be like, yo, man, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> it, it seems like a lot of, you know, when you try and shoot somebody that doesn't look like you, it's easier to, you know, if you don't identify with that person. So, like, I think, like, the fire rate in the Civil War was, like, really, really low. And if it's, like, some kind of occupation situation like this where you can actually come up to somebody and have a conversation with them, I I think, yeah, it would just be completely demoralizing even more for the invading troops. And I just, yeah, I I don't even think they would try it. So maybe what we really need to do is just have everybody learn English and, I don't know. (laughs) I I, I don't know. I'm just talking about 
Well, I, I've talked about that before, and you know, like they're uh, coming out with like these uh, phone translators where you hold out your phone and they translate, you know, whatever language people are talking in. And uh, so, I, I, you know, I think things like that will be huge. Like you said, just imagine, like. I think in the movie at one point uh, they they talk about I don't know if this was in the movie or the article but the Afghani's complain that all the Americans do is call them motherfuckers right that you know that they say motherfucker this motherfucker that imagine if like you know they could actually communicate and learn each other's names and rather than just shouting at them you could you know be on a first name basis and rather than saying motherfucker get on the ground is you know like Mohammed can you get out of the way please and so. You know, the, the, those yeah. uh, language differences could, you know, really bridge some big gaps here. Yeah, yeah, that was actually the funniest scene in the movie. Yeah. When Pip was like, oh, yeah, in our country, it's bad to be a motherfucker, too. <laughs> right. Yeah, that was in the movie. All right. I couldn't remember where I uh, got that one. Yeah. Well, hey, guys, I wanted to mention real quickly that um, CJ from Dangerous History Podcast had Scott Horton on talking about this movie as well. And they went at it for about two hours getting pretty in-depth into this. So if uh, if anyone is really keen on that, check that out, and that's uh, his episode 149 at the Dangerous History Podcast. Yeah, that's how I'm planning on scoring myself, is uh, if I said about half of what Skyhorn managed to mention about the movie, I did all right. Uh, yeah, that guy knows a lot. I can mention about it is just kind of setting the battle scene. This was the town of Marja, and what this was meant to be Stanley McChrystal's trial at his uh, counterinsurgency coin idea. And Marsha was going to be the trial run for a town like Kandahar, which is a much bigger and much more important posthumous city. One of the things they uh, mention as they're going into uh, Marja is that not all the, 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 the Afghani soldiers didn't speak the same language as the civilians there. Uh, they're like, don't they speak Pashto? <laughs> and some of the uh, other soldiers don't realize, you know, that not all the Afghanis speak the same language. There's several different uh, groups of people in Afghanistan. Most of the people fighting for the United States are not Pashtuns. Uh, so anyways, the United States was able to go in and take the town of Marja, but then had to fight for it, I think, until 2003. And then I, I believe now they don't hold the town anymore. I think the Taliban have taken it back, as well as most of the rest of the Helmand province that uh, McChrystal was hoping to liberate or take from uh, the Taliban with this operation, uh, what is it, Mosh Harkar, something like that. Uh, so, yeah, that, that's kind of what's going on here uh, in the, the real world. Uh, it's a lot more bloody. You have a lot more civilians dying. I think a lot of uh, U.S. and Afghani and U.K. troops die in the Helmand province here. And uh, it, it's just, you know, it's not a good experience. It, it's a complete failure. Daniel, what else you got, buddy? Well, that actually hits most of my notes at this point. Um, I've got the uh, freedom, security, stability, jobs. That was what the crystal was promising all the Afghanis, and they were just like, no, man, just leave. We, <laughs> we don't want all that stuff. We just want you to leave because right now you're fucking up our business. And uh, what yeah. else? Oh, and his response to them uh, be before he actually left was, uh, uh, only we can help you. So he, had, he did have that hubris where he was like, well, you need us. You need us to provide the security for you. You need us to give you the money. You need us to give you the helping hand uh, when it was really the opposite. I mean, they really did just need us to leave or need him to leave. Yeah, the, the, the idea that you can solve problems through force. I mean, violently attacking people, invading people, and decide, saying that you can control other people, especially people you don't even understand. I mean, let alone people that you look like and grow up in the same culture as you. You still... The idea that you're going to know how to live their lives and how to help them better than they can help themselves is, I, it, it's just gobsmacking. I, I just mind blowing. These people, where do they get them? Where do they come from? I don't know. But I thought Pitt was great. I love Pitt as an actor. I, I loved him ever since like Twelve Monkeys. 
and Fight Club, he's just great. He, he puts a lot of character into his characters. I don't know if he stole that run, that weird-looking run that he does in the movie from the actual guy, the but I thought arms. that was fun. <laughs> yeah, the little weird, little shuffle kind of run he does. With the, he doesn't lift his arms. Yeah, it's weird. Um, but that's the kind of detail, attention to detail that he does for his characters. It's a lot of fun. He likes to do that little physical characterizations. Um, and then, yeah, the movie, the cast actually in the movie is actually quite good and talented. There's a lot of characters, a lot of people there. I mean, Tilda Swinson shows up for one scene. Um, what's his name? Uh, Gladiator shows up at the last, in the last scene. Yep, yep. Russell Crowe. Um, yeah, just really good cast. A lot of, well done, acting, all that business. Um, I didn't even expect to see like a, a war battle scene in the movie, which still wasn't much of one, but because actually, you know, it was a big, it was a big operation, and then they just focused in on this one little platoon or whatever it was in that one area. But yeah, I guess they couldn't have told us what his plan was because there wasn't one, or it didn't make any sense. So I don't know. I thought it was a good movie. I guess I set my sort of my wrap up. It, it was a uh, black and gold. Not my favorite. I, I wish these movies didn't have to get made. Uh, but, you know, I'm glad they do, I guess, since we do have these things. It's better that people learn about them somehow. Daniel? Yeah, I'll, I'll do my little summary and then give my rating and review, and then we'll go over to you, Kyle. And uh, I'm going to go with a, a black and red on this one. Not because of the, the message, I think, was good, you know, showing how ineffective the policies have been, the foreign policy has been over there. Um, but the movie itself seemed really disjointed, and it took a long time to kind of get the bearings. Like, I think that they didn't really polish this as far as the story and the, and the narrative. So it seemed a little bit out of place and convoluted until about halfway into the movie, and then it starts to sort of fall into place. But I just felt like the, that the storytelling wasn't, wasn't all there. Um, I think Pitt was great, and the, the Tilda Swinton, is that how you say her name? Her speech at the end, uh, or his, her questioning of him during his presentation was, was really good. It was brilliant, very, very well-spoken, very anti-war. Uh, and I'm surprised that uh, a movie like this gets past all the um, censors or, or whoever you know, signs off on these things. Um, so I, I'm, I'm unfortunately going to go black and red on it, though I, I do think that people should see it, and I do recommend it. Just I don't think it's like a well-done movie. I, I don't see the $60 million budget here. All right. Uh, I guess I start off by saying that uh, Brad Pitt's character, yeah, like uh, Stanley McChrystal in real life does have kind of a funky run. I think that Brad Pitt exaggerates uh, McChrystal like just as a person a little bit. Like he's he doesn't look kind of like so cockeyed like Brad Pitt does in all the scenes like ways uh, on 60 Minutes and looks ridiculously there like with one eye closed leaning back. But McChrystal does do those kind of things. So uh, I thought the acting on Brad Pitt's part was pretty good. Uh, apparently Ben Kingsley looks a lot like Amid Karzai. I, I was shocked at, at the similarities between the two. Uh, the the two things I want to point out that I thought were you know kind of fictionalized in the movie and that was important. Uh, one of those was Barack Obama did not snub uh, Mick Crystal in Amsterdam. I think that was. I think they actually met, and apparently uh, Obama read uh, Mick Crystal the riot act at that meeting for releasing that report, uh, which is you know kind of the same general message that Obama sent Mick Crystal in the movie. And then we also have uh, Hillary Clinton's character, uh, the Secretary of State, when they're talking about the. Uh, 
whatever elections coming up in the Hillary Clinton character is kind of just in support with the rest of the diplomats. And that's really not what happened. Hillary Clinton was more supportive of Stanley McChrystal and the surge and everything like that. Uh, she may not have been super happy with the timing, but at the, at the same time, uh, Hillary Clinton was, was a supporter of that policy and not against it. Uh, my overall rating for the movie would be the, the black and gold rating. I really liked it. I was shocked. Uh, when I watched the movie, uh, just uh, the intro when he's talking about that's the longest war and it's unwinnable, uh, the, the first scene and the last scene closing it out that way, the Afghani telling uh, the U.S. soldier to leave, Hamid Karzai saying you know, that this plan is the same as the old plan, or, or for me, somebody who uh, reads foreign policy every day and knows all these things but never hears it anywhere the mainstream was just deciding. I was like, oh, yeah, every time I saw something like that. So... Uh, I really liked it. It was a lot better than I thought it would be. Uh, I thought I thought the acting was pretty good. Like you said, I, I it did seem a little disjointed at times, but I think that's more of a reflection of U.S. policy towards Afghanistan than the actual movie writing itself. Is that the policy made so little sense? The way the events unfold uh, in Afghanistan made so little sense that it doesn't make for a good movie script <laughs> because it just doesn't develop the way anything in the real world should ever develop. Yeah, and did you well, see it as as a comedy? Because it's sort of described as one, but. And I suppose there were some funny moments, but then it uh, kind of vacillates between that and, and just kind of being boring. <laughs> I, I guess being like a foreign policy guy, like I don't find that stuff boring. But I'm also, you know, the type of person that sits there and reads like articles on the geopolitics of like, you know, China and India and Pakistan. So for me, I, maybe it was a little bit more fun. Oh, yeah, and, I wasn't bored at all in the movie. I, I just thought, like, the, the, maybe the exaggeration of the McChrystal character. I thought the Flynn character was kind of funny, uh, Just, but that might be just because I have opinions about General Flynn being, I, I think he's kind of a moron, and this movie kind of validated that. Uh, so maybe that's why I enjoyed that so much. And uh, I thought him being snubbed by the president was absolutely hilarious, even though that didn't actually happen. So uh, I thought there were a couple like actual funny parts, but I thought the whole movie was just maybe a little bit of a satire on the war, like mocking people who supported it. Yeah, I'd have to go with that. It was sort of like showing it, exposing it for what it is and what else could it be, but mocking. I mean, like, yeah, this is what I wouldn't be surprised if this is far more accurate than than some other, you know, gung ho type of movie. So, yep, black and gold for me, too. All right. Well, that's our rating and reviews. And uh, this has been the Actual Anarchy podcast, episode 53, talking about War Machine with Kyle from Foreign Policy Focus and, of course, Robert. And you can find this at actualanarchy.com slash 53. And, uh, Kyle, why don't you just throw out your websites uh, for everyone and um, also uh, your uh, news roundups, because I think if, if people are interested in uh, what is going on in the foreign policy world, your roundups I've got pulled up on the screen right here, it's like, a dozen or so articles every day that you that you look at, so it sounds looks pretty cool. Yeah, uh, check those out. A lot of the times, I, I hope I put description there good enough for those of you who just have a short amount of time to read the description and have some idea of what's going on in the Middle East. I think even if you have like a vague idea of what's going on, at least when it pops up in the the mainstream media, you could have like a general idea of like, yeah, I need to question this kind of stuff. If you generally know that, you know, the U.S. has been in Afghanistan, has tried all these policies over the years, then you know when the next guy comes in like Trump and offers pretty much the same policy, that's absolutely not going to work and we don't have to, you know, do a trial and error thing. We could just write it off as stupid and move on and 
you know, in, a, in an ideal world, not have additional troops die. Uh, but my, my website is kylesfilesblog.com. Everything also goes up at the libertarianinstitute.org. Uh, the, the Facebook page, Libertarian Union, uh, love being a part of that group. Uh, it's uh, so cool what we're doing there. I hope everybody's checking that out. Uh, Twitter is at K-Y-A-A-A-L-E, and then uh, the, the page for the show, foreignpolicyfocus.libsyn.com. All right, thank you, and I'll, I'll put show notes uh, links uh, down below on uh, our website at actualanarchy.com slash 53, and uh, we might go into a little bit of Kathleen Turner Overdrive for our Patreon supporters, so if you want to get in on that, uh, do support us on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash Rothbard, and you'll get access to our before and post-show stuff, also early access and some other goodies that we've got uh, lined up, and then uh, I think that's about it for me. Uh, Robert, do you want to have a final word, and then we'll go into the overdrive? No, I just want to thank everybody for listening. Uh, I want to thank Kyle, our guest, for being on the show. Uh, he brought a level of expertise that uh, wouldn't have come from me, let me tell you that much. Um, but other than that, yeah, just uh, live free, my friends. Take care of yourselves. Peace out. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do